Thank you very much for tuning in this afternoon. My name is Kyle Owusu. I'm an emerging markets distressed debt and high yield analyst here at Reorg. And I've got our editor of Latin America here, Catherine Wiegert, and we are going to be discussing Venezuela, which is a very topical sovereign uh, credit situation. So, Catherine, I guess to just dive in, I mean, can you give us a little bit, bit of background as to you know how we got here? Thanks, Kyle. Um, let me begin by just saying that, Venezuela, that Venezuela's economy is built on oil. The republic contains some of the largest reserves in the world. For much of the 2000s, the country was awash with cash when oil was above $100 a barrel. But volume of dollars flowing into the country started to drop suddenly in 2014 when commodity prices crashed. Saddled with a heavy debt burden and declining foreign exchange reserves, the government took extreme measures to preserve cash. Today, Venezuela has about $9 billion in foreign exchange reserves and shy of about $8 billion in debt payments coming due this year. Um, not only is Venezuela in an economic crisis, but it's also in a political crisis. In late 2015, Venezuela's opposition coalition won a majority of seats in the National Assembly, turning one of the republic's branches of government against the executive. Political tension continued to mount throughout the spring of 2017 when the Supreme Court issued an order to assume the powers of the National Assembly, citing issues related to that 2015 election. The Maduro administration was widely criticized at home and abroad for his, de for his abrupt departure from democracy. Tensions escalated in the summer of 2017 when Venezuela's opposition called for a referendum vote against Maduro to affect political change. The, out the outcome of that vote showed wide discontent with the current administration, but Maduro refused to accept the vote and instead held his own referendum in late July and created what is now the, cons the National Constituent Assembly to replace the National Assembly. Venezuela is in default on sovereign and PDVSA debt, and analysts also estimate that the republic could face an additional uh, $17 billion in claims related to ICSID disputes for the nationalization of assets under the previous Chavez administration. Uh, so Kyle, you've got a gigantic capital structure to trade here. Can you tell us about some of the issues facing PDVSA and Venezuela bondholders? Sure. So just just by way of background, um, in, in terms of the capital structure, and again, these numbers are, are very rough. It's hard to reconcile all the exact claims. But, you know, you've got around, call it 45 million um, of Venezuela's sovereign debt and roughly 30, sorry, 45 billion of Venezuela's sovereign debt, my apologies, and roughly 30 billion um, of PDVSA debt. And um, the the PDVSA bonds are, are guaranteed um, by PDVSA Petroleo SA, uh, at least the PDVSA 2026 bonds, just using those as an example because those were um, they recently did an event of default on those bonds. So those bonds are guaranteed by PDVSA Petroleo SA, which is a PDVSA subsidiary, um, and the, the obligations of those bonds um, belong to both PDVSA and PDVSA Petroleo. And so you know, there, there, there's an argument to be made that that those bonds are are closer to the oil. But like everything with 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 Venezuela, it seems um, with this situation, there's a lot of question marks around that. Um, and then you know, within the within the PDVSA part of the capital structure, you've got the the PDVSA uh, eight and a half percent bonds due 2020. There's about 2.5 billion outstanding um, of those. 
those bonds uh, have a first priority lien on the capital stock of Citgo Holding, which is a PDVSA subsidiary. And it's really hard, you know, not to understate uh, the importance of, of PDVSA to Venezuela and therefore to Maduro himself. I mean, PDVSA is um, or was, I should say, as of as of fiscal year 2016, um, and probably still is, the largest contributor to Venezuela's GDP, exports, and fiscal reserves. Um, and again, like sit, the, going on the the theme of importance, PDVSA is very important to Venezuela, and Citgo is is a very important asset to PDVSA. Um, PDVSA owns 100% of Citgo, and Citgo's assets in Louisiana, Texas, and Illinois represented roughly 30% of net refining capacity in 2016. And so, when you look at the the capital structure, um, the 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 PDVSA portion of the capital structure, some people think it, it is more important strategically to the country, and so some people favor investing in that part of the capital structure for that reason. Of course, there's probably counter arguments to be made on both ends of that. Um, the other important thing to remember um, with regards to this capital structure is that, um, as Catherine pointed out, there you know analysts have estimated that there's up to 17 billion of ICSID claims. Um, and so sorting out all those claims will be difficult, and surely there are probably other um, claims that people you know have not even accounted for. So all of that all of that is to say that um, you know, in terms of just aggregating all the claims and figuring out who has claims against what box, it's very difficult. Definitely. And speaking of claims related to nationalization, there is an ongoing Crystal X litigation. Uh, there were sealed letters uh, that were filed a few days ago, Kyle. Do you want to tell people about about that, about that case? Yeah, so in the, in the ongoing Crystal X um, uh, litigation, I mean, long story short, basically um, back when uh, Chavez was in power, the Crystal X assets uh, were allegedly um, nationalized. And so Crystal X um, has a claim related to that alleged nationalization um, that Crystal X is trying to recover. And so um, the, the strategy for Crystal X is, is, is two-pronged. Um, it's based on uh, what are called alter ego claims, and there's a separate litigation um, based on fraudulent transfer claims. The fraudulent transfer litigation has recently um, been, uh, been been basically dismissed. Uh, that went against Crystal X, but there is still um, some underlying issues to be resolved with the alter ego litigation. And so Judge Stark um, has ordered uh, that no later than February 6th, uh, the parties have to file briefs addressing um, what Crystal X must prove to meet its alter ego claim. Um, and there's a really good primer, actually, that, that Norton Rose Fulbright has put out um, that explains uh, some of the guidelines that courts look at to address um, whether or not uh, a government instrumentality is actually independent. And so the article highlights some questions like uh, whether or not the assets are treated like the sovereign's own personal assets. Um, can the government appoint or remove board members? Um, and what's interesting about that is, you know, Crystal X's att attorneys have written to Judge Stark in the past, um, effectively saying, like, if you look at Maduro's actions um, and and how he's sort of treated Petavesa, uh, he really has, um, you know, skirted pretty close to the line um, in terms of using Petavesa as an instrumentality of the state, or at least that's what they're arguing. Um, they 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 point out that on November twenty second. Maduro appointed um, Asdrubal Chavez as the new president of Citco Petroleum Corp. 
Um, on November 28th, Maduro announced a the beginning of a new revolutionary phase of PDVSA restructuring. Um, there's another press release that's referenced um, that quotes a minister saying that the command of the oil industry passes into the hands of the country's first worker, Nicolas Maduro. Um, and so it, it, it remains to be seen whether or not uh, the court determines that that is enough. I'm sure, or I would imagine, that Crystal X, uh, Crystal X's attorneys probably have a lot more um, evidence that they're willing to present. And I'm sure, um, you know, on, on the other hand, Petavesa probably has some counter arguments that they're going to cut to be prepared to to bring to the table. And so um, that's sort of a wait and see, um, wait and see as well. Um, and the, the outcome is important because if, if, if Petavesa, if it's determined that Petavesa is an alter ego of Venezuela and therefore Crystalex can pursue claims against Petavesa, that potentially opens the door for other Venezuela uh, claimants to do the same. And so it potentially dilutes the pool uh, for Petavesa bondholders to recover. Um, so that's sort of uh, where we are on the on the legal front. Um, switching gears a little bit, Catherine, can you just give us an overview of what the political situation looks like today? Sure. Well, I'm going to begin by saying that uh, Venezuela's poli political situation is going from bad to worse. Um, representatives of the Maduro administration and the opposition began negotiations in the fall of last year after the vote for the Constituent Assembly, and they've continued to meet periodically in the Dominican Republic where, where uh, uh, international observers can oversee the talks. Um, the PSUV and the MUD have discussed a range of issues, um, but mostly the key topics really revolve around access to humanitarian aid and the timing of, pres of presidential elections. Um, the opposition sought to negotiate a human, uh, the opening of a humanitarian aid channel and a framework to hold free and fair presidential elections to eventually lift sanctions that the U.S. and other governments have imposed against uh, Venezuela. Uh, Maduro wanted the opposition to support him in talks with the international counterparts to lift those sanctions, and of course the opposition wanted the humanitarian channel. So that gives you an idea of what the negotiations were really about. Um, and uh, there are other issues on the table, um, but talks really kind of finally broke down actually this past week. Um, Julio Borges, who's been leading the talks for the, the opposition coalition mentioned in press conference this week um, that Maduro really wasn't willing to have international observers in Caracas to monitor elections and then subsequently set, uh, set April 22nd as the snap election date um, for presidential elections and he of course will be running on the PSUV ticket. Wow, that's exciting. So if, if Maduro won't allow um, international observers in Caracas to monitor those elections, I mean, what does that mean for sanctions? Well, I mean, the U.S., for its part, has said that it won't lift any sanctions until Venezuela hosts free and fair elections. Um, we we seem to, like I said, we seem to have been making progress uh, this week, but that ended suddenly. Um, and uh, Rex Tillerson, the U.S. Secretary of State, was on tour throughout Latin America, meeting with counterparts in Buenos Aires, Colombia, uh, the Dominican Republic, Jamaica, and uh, he raised the prospect of prohibiting the sale of oil in the U.S. or banning uh, in imports of Venezuelan oil. And then, of course, today, uh, on Friday, on Marco Rubio mentioned uh, perhaps a military coup offending the political establishment um, in Caracas. The results of the negotiation this week is important. Uh, because Venezuela has put on display uh, not only for the opposition but also for the entire community to see that 
that the PSUV is not serious about negotiating with the opposition. Uh, representatives from Spain, the Dominican Republic, and other countries were mediating this, these talks, and now everyone knows that Venezuela really won't negotiate with anyone. So just to sort of wrap, summarize, I mean, you, you, we had talks between MUD and uh, PSUV. Those talks um, have, have, have since broken down. Um, you cited April 22nd as, as the proposed date um, for the elections. I mean, are those elections going to happen? And can you give us a little sort of background as to, um, A, uh, you know, what is, what is the incentive for Maduro to either have elections early or later, um, earlier or later? And then also, um, what is it, can you give us sort of a description of, uh, the electoral council in Venezuela, um, that, that's overseeing all of these elections and, and what's going on there? Sure. Uh, with respect to the elections, um, it seems like April 22nd is going to be the date unless something happens, you know, between now and then, which is totally possible. Um, but the CNE did say this week that it's going to be April 22nd. Uh, the CNE is the Electoral Council. It's a branch of government in uh in Venezuela that's responsible for monitoring the election, setting the election dates, uh, ratifying who can you know, run for office and who can't. And uh, it, it's more or less dominated by the PSUV. The PSUV, the Maduro administration, has strong say as to what goes on there. And, and so Maduro has a very strong incentive to host the election soon. Um, so unless something else happens between now and April 22nd, I really don't know why they wouldn't go on. Um, Maduro uh, wants these elections to happen. Like I said, he's the only candidate who's running on the PSUV ticket. Um, and then on top of that, uh, Venezuela's economy is just getting worse. Oil production is going down. If the U.S. imposes a, a ban on oil, it's just going to get worse from here. And that will undermine Maduro's credibility domestically. Um, so he really does have a strong incentive to do elections sooner rather than later, just anticipating that the economy is only going to get worse from here. Um, and with respect to the Electoral Council, like I said, it's important to remember that it's ruled by the PSUV or it's more or less dominated by the PSUV. Um, it's the government. It's the it's a, it's the branch of government that decides who can run. And so, since it is controlled effectively by the government, there is real concern that Maduro will rig the election or block voters from going to the polls because he's done this before. He did it last year during the opposition referendum. Um, and he's also recently banned some of the opposition parties from participating in the election. And I think that this shows how he's taking steps to kind of manipulate the system. He's cherry picking the parties uh, that he wants to run or the opposition parties that will be allowed to participate in the, can in, in the elections. And you'll notice that the most influential parties, uh, the most influential candidates, uh, Leopoldo Lopez, Enrique Capriles, can't register for the election. They've been banned. Wow. I mean, uh, you know, as we all know, um, investing is, is certainly a probabilities game, but this sounds like a lot of uncertainty for bondholders. Absolutely. Um, U.S. creditors can engage with uh, sanctioned individuals. So how uh, how will those creditors restructure with the current administration? Um, I don't know. Investors will probably want to see some new economic policies, and you'll probably uh, want support from the IMF as well. And it's hard to envision how all of this is going to happen. And if it does happen, how long will it take? Which is partly the entire 
uh, reason why the capital structure trades at such a discount. Um, also, if you get everyone to the table and reach an agreement exchanging existing debt for new debt, if there is an administration, how will the bonds be honored? Um, these are all questions that the market is analyzing, but ultimately, um, the, in the, but ultimately, what everyone wants to know is like what needs to happen in Venezuela for there to be a change in, in administrations. Maduro has turned decidedly autocratic, and you can't negotiate with someone who isn't respected by the international community. Got it. That's a great wrap-up, and it, it sounds like there there will need to be uh, more clarity around elections, sanctions, or both before the restructuring talks begin in earnest. Well, thank you very much for that insight, Catherine, and thanks a lot to our listeners for tuning in to our podcast on Venezuela's sovereign debt, and we will see you next time. Thanks again. Bye.